Amen. Thank you guys for leading us in worship and thank you, Alyssa and Jason, for, for helping us out this morning. I tell you, I, I had a great time with the kids and I'll, I think I said this before I left, but I had never gone to a youth camp with a bunch of teenagers before. <clears throat> but I'll do it again. We had a great time. Uh, had an awesome time. And I tell you, uh, the song they just sang, uh, we've sung that together several times just in the last few weeks. Um, and you know, it just blesses your heart and, and, and just makes you grateful to God for His work by His Holy Spirit in the lives and hearts of our kids to know that they're singing that from their heart. And that really is the prayer of their heart. really is the desire of their heart. We had some good times in the evenings uh, after everything was over, uh, talking and, and just uh, kind of going over what had been preached and taught. And uh, it was just incredible for me to sit and listen most of the time and, and just let them talk and let them react to God's Word and how it affects their lives. And it was just a great time. Um, it was also awesome for me to watch. <clears throat> now, you couldn't have, some of y'all couldn't have stood it. <clears throat> during the worship time, passion, I mean, when I say they rocked the house, I mean, like, literally, it shook. Uh, loud rock. I mean, it was great, but it was, it was loud music. But these kids, in the middle of all that, the songs they were singing, uh, exalting Christ, just uh, the freedom that they had to just be able to worship and, and worship to their music and worship their way, it was awesome just to see that uh, and, and enjoy that with them. And... Uh, I, I don't, they, they do this jumping thing now when they sing. Um, I don't jump, but I mean, I, I raise my hand, hallelujah, you know, I'm singing loud, but I tried to keep up, but I, I, when you're my age, the jumping thing looks a little funny, so let's pray together. Father, we want to thank you for our young people today, and, and most of all, for your grace and mercy in their lives and through them. Pray for their futures, we pray for... Um, uh, our youth group, and just uh, that, God, you would provide all that's needed there in the days ahead. Father, right now, I pray that you would capture our hearts and minds by the Spirit of God and by the Word of God. And, Jesus, that you would speak to us directly, clearly, unmistakably, and in a a life-changing way. Father, may we not leave the way we came today. May we be closer to Jesus, more clean and pure from this world and, and more full of your grace that it may spill over out of our lives into those around us. Thank you for the victory that's ours in Jesus, in whose name we pray, amen. In a New York, New York Times article from December of 2015, Arthur C. Brooks writes and, and talks about back in 1993, there was an art critic named Robert Hughes who published a grumpy yet entertaining book called Culture of Complaint. In that book, he predicted that America, this is 1993, he predict, predicted that America was doomed to become increasingly and in, I can't even say this word, infantilized, that's not the right pronunciation, probably, but an infantilized culture, in other words, become like babies, you with me, of victimhood. Victimhood culture has now been identified 
as a widening social phenomenon by mainstream sociologists. And it is impossible to miss the obvious examples all around us. We can laugh some of them off. For example, the argument that the design of a Starbucks cup is evidence of a secular war against Christmas. But others, however, are more ominous. On campuses all across the nation, activists interpret ordinary interactions as microaggressions, and they set up safe spaces to protect students from certain forms of speech. And presidential candidates on both the left and the right routinely motivate supporters by declaring that they are under attack by immigrants or wealthy people. Now, does this mean that we should reject all claims of people who are victims in this victim culture in which we live? Of course not. Some people are indeed truly victims in America, victims of crime, victims of discrimination, racism, deprivation, victims of horrific things like rape and human trafficking. Racism is a reality even today in our nation. Simple hatred for particular groups. People are victims of of, of death and loss. People are victims of divorce Families don't ask for those situations many times. And these situations of true victimhood deserve our empathy and require justice. In fact, we as Christians should lead the charge for justice for those who are being truly victimized. But I think you get the point. We live in a culture that has gone victim crazy, don't we? Poor, poor, pitiful me seems to be the song predominantly sung all around us and even by us, even in the church at times. Everything wrong in my life, you see, is always someone else's fault. And I can't rise above whatever it may be that has happened to me because, you see, I'm a victim. And in order to keep your sympathy and your attention and and the focus on me, I'm happy just to stay right here in my victimhood. Because you see, if I take personal responsibility or realize that though life is hard and and confusing sometimes, the world really is not out to get me and I just start living my life, well, then the attention might shift away from me because you see, it's really narcissism at the end of the day that's the foundation of much. Again, not all. There are real victims of our victim culture today. But I'd suggest that even when we are truly victims from some horrific wrong done, how we handle being victimized can quickly turn narcissistic if we're not careful. And yet, for us as followers of Jesus Christ, even when we are legitimate victims in whatever the circumstance or situation, if we understand who He is and what He has done for us, what we will see is that we are victors, not victims. That's what I want to talk to you about this morning. And I'm taking a Louis Giglio sermon from Passion Camp and modifying it. So there's the disclaimer. I had to modify it for a couple reasons. Luke was talking about Tuesday night, real Christian, not real Christian. They had a dress-up bear, and then onto the stage walks a real live black bear. I'm not that good with my object lessons. The night that this sermon was preached, there was a convertible, a real one, right there next to the stage. So I had to modify it a little bit because uh, the convertible wouldn't fit through the door. 
Victors, not victims. This I want to talk to you about this morning. We're going to be in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 14 to 17. If you want to find it in your Bible or if you just want to check it out from the screen up here. And here's the take home. If you are in Christ, you are not a victim, but a victor who is called to spread the news of victory in Jesus. If you are in Christ, you are ultimately, no matter what your circumstances, you are ultimately not a victim, but a victor over whatever your circumstances in Jesus, and you're called to live as a victor and spread the news of victory in Jesus. You see, even though Jesus himself was the victim of the greatest injustice of all time, his story is not the story of a victim. His story is the story of the greatest victor of all time. Amen? And such is the power of the cross and the resurrection of Christ for you and for me. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 14 to 17. The text says, Paul begins by saying, But, thanks be to God, but... Remember, whenever we find those words that start sentences off like therefore or for or but, there's, there's a connection back to something. In this particular case, Paul's in this context. Paul has been expressing some, some dis- discouragement he's having about ministry. Certain things that he wanted to see happen in his ministry hadn't happened. And so he's, he's sort of discouraged. He's a little frustrated and, 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 and discouraged about the, by the Corinthians themselves, how they're handling a certain situation in their midst. And in the middle of this moment of anxiety, of discouragement, he says, but, there's something I hadn't forgotten. I may be downcast, I may be a little frustrated by circumstances, things may not be going exactly like I hope to see, but, thanks be to God, I've not forgotten this, thanks be to God, who always, underline that in your Bible, who always, what does that mean? How much, how often, always, leads us captives in Christ's triumphal procession and uses us to spread the aroma of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are, to God, the pleasing aroma of Christ among those who are being saved and those who are perishing. To the one, we are an aroma that brings death. To the other, an aroma that brings life. And who is equal to such a task? Unlike so many, we do not peddle the word of God for profit. On the contrary, in Christ we speak before God with sincerity as those sent from God. Man, what, a, what an amazing few verses. What a powerful encouragement about our always triumph in Christ. I want you to really get the fullness of this picture, though, because what's going on here is Paul is alluding to something from Roman culture called the triumph. The Romans had what they called a triumph. It was the highest honor that could ever be paid to a victorious Roman general. But before any Roman general could be granted a triumph, he must have been the actual commander-in-chief in the field, not a secondary leader. The campaign that he engaged in must have been completely finished, the region which was conquered completely pacified, and the victorious troops brought home from the field. Furthermore, according to, the Roman, to Roman history, 5,000 of the enemy at least must have fallen in one engagement so that it fell into, in, in, into the category of a, of a complete slaughter. Furthermore, as a result of this campaign... 
a positive extension of Roman territory must have been gained, not merely a disaster retrieved or an attack repelled. And the victory must have been won over a foreign foe, not civil war. With all that said, triumphs didn't happen very often. But when one actually came about, when a general was actually so honored, the procession of the victorious general marched through the streets of Rome all the way to the capital. And you can even read about the sequence of that march and the order of the people in the parade. Interestingly enough, first there came the state officials and the Senate. Always the politicians, front and center, right? First ones to be seen in public. Then there came the trumpeters who were heralding what was coming. Then came the spoils taken from the conquered land, carted along. Just could be, you know, exotic animals. It could be just gold, whatever they had, they had, they had uh, brought back from the conquered land. Then there came some painted pictures in, of the conquered land and some models, if you can believe that, of conquered citadels and, and conquered ships. They would, they would show off the actual little, little mini models of the actual uh, forts that they had overthrown. Then there followed the white bull, which was going to be offered as a sacrifice to the Roman gods. Then there came the wretched captives, the enemy princes, leaders, and generals in chains to show the victorious power of the Roman general, shortly to be flung in prison and, in all probability, to be executed. Then there came what were called lictors, or the punishers, who were beating these people with rods all throughout the parade. Then there came the musicians, and then there came the priests swinging their censers with sweet-smelling incense burning. Don't forget that part. And then there came the general himself after all this huge entourage. He was in a chariot drawn by four horses, clad in a purple tunic embroidered with gold and palm leaves, and, and over it a purple toga marked out with golden stars. In his hand, he had an ivory scepter with a Roman eagle on the top of it, and over his head, a slave held the crown of Jupiter, and After him rode his family. And finally, at the very end, came the army wearing all their decorum and shouting, Triumph! 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 Here's a clip to kind of give you a visual from the old movie Ben-Hur. doesn't give you each and every detail of the procession like I described to you, but Paul picks up in our passage on that image of Roman life, and he applies it in a beautiful way 
with a redemptive twist or two to Jesus' salvation victory and our participation in that victory. We are victors, not victims. If you are in Christ, you are not a victim, but a victor called to spread the news of victory in Jesus. Do you see the picture better now? There are no politicians leading this triumph. Jesus is front and center as our resurrected Savior, riding high as the ultimate victor over sin and death and hell. And there we are, as believers, right there with him. Now, we're in one of two places in this victory mark. Or perhaps Paul wants us to think of being in both places in a different sense. What are you talking about, Chad? Well, I'm fixing to tell you. Hang on. Some translators, or or some interpreters, like the translators of the NIV from which we've read, based the usage of the Greek, uh, based on the usage of the Greek word in other places, some think that Paul puts a twist on things, and that, as we read in the text in uh, in verse 14, that we are the captives... Those who have been, and here's the twist, gladly conquered by God's grace in Jesus. Jesus came to where we lived in sin on a campaign to conquer us by his love and make us who were his enemies to be his friends and adopted children in his father's family. Kind of takes that picture and twists it a little bit. The other possibility is that we are members of the victor's army marching with our king and ready for the next gospel conquest, a reality to which the passage does refer down there in verses 16 and 17 where he says, we are the fragrance of Christ, the, the, the fragrance of Christ. God uses us to spread that to all those that we come in contact with and it's done, as you see in verses 16 and 17, through the preaching of the gospel. I'm good with either. I kind of favor the former, but I can see that Paul may be pulling from from the whole picture and and, and, and kind of twisting the, the image a little bit and saying, we are all up in the triumphal parade of Jesus. If you want to think of yourself as the slave, graciously conquered, happily in subjection to the King of kings and Lord of lords, the Savior of your souls, that works too. If you want to think of yourself as part of the army of God and, 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 and a, a fellow soldier with Jesus to get the gospel to the world and rescue others from the slavery of sin and, and bring them into the joy of grace, then that works. As we'll see in a few minutes and talk about kind of toward the end, you're also the fragrance of the incense that the, that the pagan priest would swing. You're, you're the incense. You're, you're the smell of Christ as Christ marches You know, Jesus told Peter what? On the rock of your confession, which was that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, Jesus said, on that rock, I will build my church. Do you understand? Don't miss this picture. This is a present tense picture. Jesus is marching in triumph today. He is always marching in triumph. And don't miss the most important part for you right now. He is is leading you and me in triumph every single day. He reigns today. He lives today. And because he lives, we can't just face tomorrow. We can win tomorrow over sin. We can win in witness for Christ because he lives. We've been overcome by grace. 
And we are now being used by God to advance the victor's glory through our preaching of the gospel. You know, this was true of the early church. Over in Acts chapter 8, this is actually before Saul was saved. This is before Paul became Paul. He was Saul, and he was a persecutor of the church. This is, this is moments after the stoning of Stephen. The, the chapter turns the corner from chapter 7 to chapter 8, and it says, And Saul approved of their killing him. Saul was standing there. They put his, their clothes at his feet. They took their jackets off so they could stone Stephen better. So they get it wind up better with the rocks they were throwing at Stephen to kill him. And they laid him at Saul's feet. And Saul was approving of his death. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem. And all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. But Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. So what did they do? Did they cry, victim, victim, oh my goodness. The next verse says, those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. What got them persecuted in the first place? Hello. We kind of need to pick this part up, so let's, I'll wait. Proclaiming the word. That's what got Stephen stoned. He was telling people that his fellow Jews in Jerusalem, you need a savior, and it's not in the sacrificial system. It's the once for all sacrifice of the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, whose name is Jesus. You need him. Got him stoned. It's what caused the uproar. It's what caused the persecution. It's why they were driven from their homes. But what did they do when they got driven? Think about it. If the government came in today and drove you from your home, because you were a Christian, and you had to scatter all over the state of Georgia, maybe, maybe out of the country, whatever, what would you be doing? The early church kept doing what they were doing when they got scattered, proclaiming the word of God. John Piper comments on these verses and says, driven from their homes by the persecution, they went about preaching the word. What? No self-pity? No complaint against God? No, no cry of victim? Listen to this right now story. By that I mean going on today kind of story. That shows what a church looks like when believers live as victors, not victims. In an article written by Mark Howard entitled, The Story of Iran's Church in Two Sentences... He writes and says, persecution threatened to wipe out Iran's tiny church back in the 70s. Instead, the church in Iran has become the fastest growing in the world. And it is influencing the region for Christ. The Iranian revolution of 1979 established a hardline Islamic regime. Over the next two decades, Christians faced increasing opposition and persecution. All missionaries were kicked out. Evangelism was outlawed. Bibles in Persian were banned and soon became scarce. And several pastors were killed. The church came under tremendous pressure. Many feared the small Iranian church would soon wither away and die. But the exact opposite has happened. Before I tell you what happened, it's a good place to insert because, but thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ. 
Despite continued hostility from the late 1970s until now, Iranians have become the Muslim people most open to the gospel in the Middle East. How did it happen? Two factors have contributed contributed to this openness. First, violence in the name of Islam has caused widespread disillusionment with the regime and led many Iranians to question their beliefs. Second, many Iranian Christians have continued to boldly and faithfully tell others about Christ in the face of persecution. How? Because they understand they're victors in Christ, not victims of an Islamic culture. And they understand that if they die, they're still victors in Christ for all eternity. In fact, then they get the ultimate victory. Amen? How many of you think about the ultimate victory sometimes? It seems like I think about dying more and more. I think about heaven more and more. I think about getting out of this world and seeing Jesus more and more. It's not an escapist mentality. It's a longing to see the one that died for me. And things heavenly become more real day by day than things earthly. As a result of their continued bold and faithful proclamation of the gospel in the face of persecution. As a result, more Iranians have, come to, have become Christians, listen to this, in the last 20 years than in the previous 13 centuries put together since Islam came to Iran. In 1979, there were an estimated 500 Christians from a Muslim background in Iran. Today, there are hundreds of thousands, some say more than one million. Whatever the exact number, many Iranians are turning to Jesus as Lord and Savior. In fact, last year, the mission research organization, Operation World, named Iran as having the fastest-growing evangelical church in the world. According to the same organization, just as an aside, the second fastest-growing church is in Afghanistan. And Afghanis are being reached in part by Iranians since their languages are simple, similar. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm just going to stop there for a second because that just kind of convicts me to the core. The place we think that could be the worst possible place to be on the planet has the fastest growing church. And the place that we say is the best place to live on the planet, and I agree with that statement, we're nowhere close. And to hear that Iranians, who've got enough trouble of their own, and just sharing the gospel in their own community is a big deal, they're going as missionaries to Afghanistan. The young lady's name was Fatima. Fatima's earliest memories were being raped by her brothers. At age 11, she was sold in marriage to a young drug addict there in Iran who abused her and then divorced her when she was 17. Upon returning home, she was raped again until she decided to leave. It was on the streets in Iran that she heard the gospel preached and she trusted Jesus. In time, she married a Christian man. And as they were receiving training in evangelism and church planning, Fatima felt called to go back home where she'd been raped by her brothers and witnessed her family. Her entire family repented and gave their lives to the Lord. The first church Fatima and her husband planted was in her childhood home. 
Mark Howard writes, I've heard countless other testimonies that are equally remarkable. Each one is a painful and yet marvelous celebration of the gospel's beauty. Listen to this next sentence. Each one is a powerful reminder that despite trials and persecution, perhaps because of the suffering, the gospel of Jesus shines and the church of Jesus grows. You hear me? If you are in Christ, you are not a victim, but a victor. Called to spread the news of victory in Jesus to the world. So how can we live like this? You may be thinking, Chad, this sounds great, but I'm not sure I can make the rubber hit the road on this deal. How can we live like this? How can we actually live as victors in our world? At this point, I'm barring straight from Louie. So blame Louie if you don't like the next part. Number one, look on the cross. There's some things you may want to jot down. Look on the cross and the resurrection of Jesus. Fix your eyes on him. Remember, not just that picture, but what it means, what he did on the cross, what the resurrection means. And, 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 and understand this, Jesus knows your pain. When you think about the cross and the resurrection, think about the reality. Jesus knows your pain. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 17 and 18. It says, for this reason, he, Jesus, had to be made like them, us, all of humanity, fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. Because he, because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. There's nothing you've ever gone through or ever will experience that Jesus didn't in some shape, form, or fashion experience. He understands your pain. And even if today you're a true victim, something horrible has happened to you, you could be in this room this morning a victim of rape. Perhaps you're in this room and, 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 and and you're a young person, and, 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 and you're a victim of divorce. You didn't have a thing to do with it. Your family got busted all to pieces, and you didn't have anything to do with it. Jesus knows your pain. Maybe you've, you've, you've suffered incredible financial loss through no fault of your own. Whatever, whatever it, it is, Jesus understands your pain. He is a merciful and faithful high priest because he lived in our skin. He walked in our shoes. He can be merciful because he's been where I am. Secondly, as you think about looking on the cross and, and the resurrection of Jesus, secondly, God's love is undeniable and his power is greater no matter your circumstances. When you get a good fix fixed gaze on the cross, when you, when you, get, when you get zoned in on, on the resurrection of Jesus, on who Jesus is, what you see is God's love is undeniable. And His power is greater no matter your circumstances. Amen? Romans 8, first, verses 35 to 39, familiar, but please don't miss it. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? you see the cross? Do you see the risen Jesus? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Anything that we could legitimately cry victim over? 
as it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We're considered as sheep to be slaughtered. And what that, that, that as it is written verse means, verse 36, what it means, it tells us that, it's, that sometimes our victim status, stay with me on this please, don't miss this. Sometimes our victim status, facing death all day long, as Paul says it, being considered as sheep to be slaughtered. Sometimes our victim status is part of our assignment as victors. Something that God uses and has planned to make victory in Jesus known all the more clearly. Why do you think the gospel shines in Iran and Afghanistan so brightly? Why do you think it runs into the hearts and lives and souls of men, women, women, boys, and girls? Because in their suffering, they hold on, something, on to something greater than their own life. And the people around them want to know, what is it? Because it's not found in Islam. There's no grace in Islam. There's grace in the very love of God, incarnate in His Son, in the message of the gospel. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall any of these things? No, in all these things, verse 37, we are more than conquerors. We are hyper-conquerors, the Greek word means, through him who loved us. We are riding in the victory parade with Jesus. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Hear me, God's love is, is bigger, it's better. No matter your circumstances. But God's power is greater, no matter your circumstances. First John 4, verses 3 and 4 John's teaching them about false teaching and ultimately the, the, the Antichrist. He says, but if someone claims to be a prophet and does not acknowledge the truth about Jesus, that person is not from God. Such a person has, has the spirit of Antichrist, which you heard is coming into the world and indeed is already here. And if you're reading this letter from John, you begin to tremble. You, 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 you know the full-blown version of Antichrist and what it's going to look like and how bad it's going to be when he gets turned loose. And you begin to tremble. And so John fought, writes his next sentence this way. But you belong to God, my dear children. You have already won a victory over those people because the spirit who lives in you is greater than the spirit who lives in the world. What does that mean? Without getting into eschatology and, and where we all stand on that, here's, here's, here's at least what it means. When things get bad... And the spirit, at least, of Antichrist, if not the Antichrist himself, gets turned loose, and we as believers are facing that, we can overcome even then. That's what John's saying. Because we are always being led, thanks be to God, in the triumphal procession of Christ. Look on the cross and the resurrection of Jesus. I think this is thirdly. I think I've already done two, haven't I? No, this is second. I did three subpoints to the first one. No, I didn't. Golly, bum. Sometimes I get so excited, I don't know what I've done. Y'all give me a second, and I'll figure it out. God's power, God's love is better, and God's power is greater, no matter your circumstances. Thirdly, as we think about looking on the cross and resurrection of Jesus, hear this part. God can, in this life, 
but we know that he ultimately will, in the next, flip the script. Whatever it is that's so horrific and makes us feel like victims now, he's going to write it one day. He's going to flip the script. We read the script as negative, bad, hard, ugly, awful. He's going to redeem it. He's going to flip it around, and in the end, he will receive glory through whatever it is that we are in today. How do I know that? Because it was true in the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Acts chapter 2, verses 22 to 24. Peter, preaching on the day of Pentecost, says, Fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you. Listen to this. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. The day Jesus died, what did the disciples think? They thought, it's over. We've wasted three years of our lives. And the one we thought was Messiah is no different than the other man. He's graveyard dead. They looked at what was going on and they felt like victims in their culture where all these wicked men had overcome the supposed, obviously not because he's dead, son of God. (laughs) And yet Peter tells the people that killed Jesus straight up, right to their face, you put him to death by your own evil hands, and yet in the whole thing you were just doing what God had predetermined and planned, predestined to happen in time. You were just working out the plan of God because on day three, he rose from the dead. God raised him from the dead. The death couldn't, the grave couldn't hold him. And all of a sudden, the same people that felt like victims, felt helpless, realized three days later, We are forevermore victors because Jesus lives. God can can and ultimately will flip the script. The second way to make this all practical, leave the story that ends with me and tell the story that ends with Jesus. What do you talk about? Is your conversation all about you? Leave the story that, that ends with me and tell the story that ends with Jesus. You see, a victim's story is always about me. A victor's story always ends with the victor, Jesus. Leave the story. Leave it behind. The story that ends with me and tell the story that ends with Jesus Verses 14 to 17 of our text, the second part of verse 14, describes, just, let's, let's just read it real quick. It says, 14, thanks be to God who always leads us as captives in Christ's triumphal procession. Listen. And uses us to spread the aroma of the knowledge of him everywhere. 
Verses 15 and 16 talk about how, depending on how, pe- how people respond to the gospel, to some were the smell of life, to others the smell of death. But at the end of verse 17, he makes it clear. We speak before God with sincerity. We're not peddling the word of God. We speak with sincerity before God as those sent from God. How is it that God spreads the aroma of Christ through us? It's when we open our mouths and talk about Jesus. That doesn't have to be some canned presentation. It's just living in victory as one of his co-victors. It's talking about him, not us. We don't have time to, to listen to this song. I wish we did. Big Daddy Weave, uh, cool name, right? <laughs> He's Big Daddy Bald, actually. But anyway, Big Daddy Weave, his, he sings a song called My Story, and it, and it goes like this. If I told you my story, you would hear hope that wouldn't let go. If I told you my story, you would hear love that never gave up. If I told you my story, you would hear life, but it wasn't mine. If I should speak, then let it be of the grace that is greater than all my sin. And when justice was served and where mercy wins and of the the kindness of Jesus that draws me in, oh, to tell you my story is to tell of him. If I told you my story, you would hear victory over the enemy. And if I told you my story, you would hear freedom that, has, that was won for me. And if I told you my story, you would hear life overcome the grave. If I should speak, then let it be of the grace that is greater than all my sin and of, and of, and of when justice was served and where mercy wins, of the kindness of Jesus that draws me in. Oh, to tell you my story is to tell of him. You see, if you're in Christ, you are not a victim. You are a victor called to spread the news of victory in Jesus. Three points of application and I'm done. As the church in America, we'll go three different levels. National, local, individual. You with me? As the church in America, we are not victims in this nation turned upside down by wickedness. And this nation needs to see us living as the victors we are in Christ, not playing the victim and aligning ourselves with the power of this empire, trying to salvage our legal rights and our economic and political standing by selling our souls and evangelicals all across the nation are doing it today. I don't have to complete the sentence, do I? Rather, we should be living with the only priority to which Jesus called us, spreading the good news of salvation in his name. We should be living our lives unmoved by the prospects of this election because we are crystal clear on who our king is and that he reigns as supreme victor and we are victors in him. That's what this nation needs to see from you and from the church all across this country, East L.J. Baptist Church. There's been some difficult years in our life together recently, haven't there? If you've been here, just nod your head. Some of you know much more than I do because you've been through many, 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 many more storms than I. And we've got some real challenges that we're going to continue to face for the foreseeable future. But while that's true, we are not victims, but victors in Jesus. And we must continue to march with our king and spread his life-giving fragrance in our community no matter what happens. 
For we are victors in Christ, and his message of victory is the power of God unto salvation no matter where we gather. Amen? Excuse me? Hello? Is that true? I asked your pulpit me before I came here this question. Actually, the question was, was posed to me. You know, we owe a bunch of money on a building. How are you going to handle that? So let me, ask you, let me ask you a question. Who are you as a church? Does your existence hinge on a physical edifice, or are you the body of Christ that will be the body of Christ regardless? They said, yes, we're the body of Christ, or I wouldn't be here. <laughs> and so it is. Now for you and for me, individually. When you boil it all down, this whole message, when you boil it all down, it comes down to you and me first, living this out individually, every day in our routine schedules. As those of us who are in Christ, living out the truth that we are not victims, but victors. Called to spread the news of victory in Jesus, the eternal victor. Let's pray.